was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information about our church, for more sermon audio, or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Let me just give you a quick update really fast before we, we hop into our text this morning. Um, Justin, right now, um, is about two and a half hours in uh, to a 100-mile bike ride. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. So if you think about it this afternoon, it should take him roughly about seven hours to complete this. Uh, so if you think about him this afternoon, be sure to pray for the man. Uh, because not only is he, he riding his bike for 100 miles, uh, but then after that, this evening, he's hopping on a plane. Uh, which there's nothing better than riding for 100 miles and then sitting inside of a, an itty-bitty chair uh, for a plane ride to Orlando, Florida. Uh, Justin this week is going to Orlando, Florida, something called Exponential, uh, which is a church planting conference. Um, it's a great time for us as a church that we get to celebrate what is happening um, across our nation regarding church planting, uh, specifically within our own group of, of churches that we've aligned ourselves with. Uh, there's an organization, or there's a, a movement simply called Multiply Together. Uh, and there's a group of churches throughout the Texas and Oklahoma district that we are a part of, which have decided that we are going to gather together to multiply together. Uh, and this multiplication, not just on the church level, but it's multiplication throughout the church, from uh, disciples, from individuals, to leaders, to uh, groups, to ultimately the bigger one is, is churches. And so they get to gather together uh, as senior pastors of churches and discuss what are we doing to multiply and even more importantly, together, what can we do to partner together to further the gospel? Uh, there's a number of them that are from our San Antonio area, which is tremendous that we get to partner with some local churches uh, that are trying to further the gospel in the, the city of San Antonio. So if you think about it, be praying for him today as well as throughout this week as, as he gets to speak with a, a group of pastors um, on what multiplication from a church plant level uh, looks like. If you've been with us before, we kind of took a little break for Easter. We were in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're hopping now back into the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, but I know it could have been a little bit for you. It's been about two weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians, so I'd love to just do a, a quick flyby of the first three chapters uh, if you missed any of those sermons, by the way, feel free to go to the website. You can uh, go on there. You can listen to any sermon that we've ever done. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, we have Paul writing to a church in Corinth. Uh, this church actually is one that Paul helped to plant in Acts chapter 18. We see the beginning of this church. And he's now writing a letter to them because he's heard some things. He, he's heard some things that have caused him concern. One of the main things that he seems to have heard is since he has left, there have been others who have stepped into to this church, uh, and they've, they've begun to teach a false gospel. And the Corinthians, the, the individuals gathering together as the Corinthian church here, have begun to follow even this false gospel. And so Paul hears this, and he decides then to write them a letter. For the first three chapters, he kind of begins with his greeting, and he kind of is setting the stage for where he's going for the rest of the letter. He's begun to process through one of the big issues that he has seen so far in this church is there begins to be division. False teachers have come in, 
And instead of proclaiming a true gospel, they began to proclaim a false gospel, which has divided the people into different camps and different uh, segments within their local church body. If we pick it up here in chapter 4, Paul has begun to transition now. The greeting is over, the stage has been set, and he begins now to rebuke the people of the Corinthian church. There's a big difference whenever you're simply a casual observer and when somebody actually is rebuking you. Let me just take a second. What's your response to somebody who comes up to you and says, hey, we need to talk? And the first thing out of their mouth is the negative. They begin to rebuke you. There's a couple different responses. Maybe they're defensive. Maybe you're defensive. If you want to see the person next to you, if they're this type of person, if their automatic is defense, just look at them, give them that stank face, and say, hey, you parked over the line out in that parking lot, and that's upset me. If they're a defensive person, they're instantly going to, no, I actually didn't do that. See, what happened was the sun was glaring in my eyes, and I tried to turn in there, and it didn't work. Or, well, I, I wasn't driving my vehicle. If I had my vehicle, I could park within those lines easily. They begin to, to throw out the excuses. That's usually a defensive person. Maybe you're a confrontational person. You just love conflict. And you know in your mind that you parked with that line right between both of your tires. You didn't even try to get in a parking spot. You say, you know what, I'm worthy to park in two parking spots, and I don't care what you say. You could have said you parked on the line, and I'm going to disagree with you either way. That's a confrontational person. That We all love those type of people, don't we? They're our best friends. Maybe you're a peaceful person, and you could have parked perfectly within the lines, and you know you nailed it. It was like one of those days where you get out in this like perfect amount of space on both sides of the vehicle. But because you're a peaceful person, you're just like, okay. And you don't even try to, to defend yourself. And it's just a, yeah, you're, you're right. You, you, you avoid confrontation. Um, for, for us, though, what's really nice is we almost get to be a bystander of what happens here. We are not the Corinthian church, but we get to observe what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. We're a product almost of this rebuke. I think it's really relevant. It's a lot like NASCAR. I think one of the only reasons that people watch NASCAR is just to see a wreck. Why else do you sit there for three hours watching cars go in a circle? It's simply so that you can eventually see the confrontation. We get to participate in that. We get to see the confrontation of Paul coming against the Corinthian church. We get to see what happens from kind of an outsider's perspective living in. Our society actually does this all the time. We love it. If you don't believe me, turn on the news tomorrow. Why do we watch the news? And why is it typically negative news? Because we enjoy seeing confrontation. We don't like it whenever it happens to us, but we enjoy seeing it from an outside perspective. If you're driving down 281 and it's one of the rare times that there's not normal traffic on 281, but you're just bumper to bumper and you're thinking, what is going on? And you come up and there's a wreck on the other side of the road. <laughs> Why is my traffic slowed down to a standstill? It, it wasn't even on your side of the road. It's because we love to be bystanders. We love to see what's going on. You love to see that conflict. In our text this morning, we get to be casual observers. So let's take a look here at what's happening. First Corinthians chapter 4. Let me go ahead and read for the first six verses here. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So he begins by discussing his role here specifically as an apostle. But ultimately, as Justin said a couple of weeks ago, whenever he preached the very first verse of this text, it's ultimately all of our roles as believers to be found faithful as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. If I could just summarize this this one word in here, he, he mentions a word that might not be familiar. It's the word steward. Justin did a tremendous job of walking us through what is a steward. But if I could just summarize it, it is we are responsible, we are given something that we are responsible to manage, we're responsible to do with it. And Paul also clues us in on how to be judged for this stewardship and for this servanthood. One of the things I always did in school was to find out where the syllabus is and to find out what the rubric is. So a rubric is simply a a list or a document that says, hey, here's what you are going to do, and here's how you are going to be graded for it. So typically within an assignment, you'll have different categories listed of, here's all the things that you need to complete regarding this assignment, and here's how I'm going to score you regarding that assignment. For some classes, it's usually an A, B, C, D, or an F scale. And if you meet all of the qualifications over on this side, then you get an A. But if you meet all the qualifications except for one, you're gonna get a B. If you so forth, go down, you can do the grade. For me, as a student, I would grab that rubric and I would first see, what does it take to get an A? And really what I'm asking is, is it worth my time and is it worth my effort to get an A? Really, really what I'm asking is, do I really care enough about this assignment? That's really what I'm asking. And for me, growing up in high school, it wasn't even do I care enough about this assignment. It was more, do my parents care enough about this assignment for me to care enough about this assignment for me to actually care what the rubric even says? That's who I was as a student. In this case here, we have our rubric laid out for us. Paul gives us our set standard. It's found in verse chapter two here. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. They be found faithful. As a steward of the gospel, this is our rubric. This is what Paul has given us as our standard to be found faithful. As a steward of the gospel, have you been, are you being found faithful? Paul's laid out our task, and he's now set the rubric for us. He moves forward, though. He doesn't leave it there. He continues on and discusses a, a, an interesting section here on judgment. One of the best things I remember about being in high school were these two key words, me either. Me either. And it goes something like this. Hey, have you started that research paper? No, me either. It's tremendous to hear. It gives you a, a, oh, good. They haven't done it. I haven't done it. I'm not as far behind as I thought that I would be. It's okay. It's a sigh of relief of, all right, well, they haven't done it yet, and they're like that A student. And I haven't done it yet, so I'm right there with the A student. We're doing okay. (laughs) 
However, it actually doesn't matter whether our friends have done the assignment or I have done the assignment. Look with me, verses three through five here. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul's causing us here to look at the judge. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter whether I've started the assignment or you've started the assignment. We don't hold the power. As stewards, we're simply granted this position because of the one who gave us that authority. It it isn't even ours. It was simply given to us. If we bring it back here to the classroom, have you ever had an assignment that you thought you absolutely killed it on? You turn it in, you thought, I did wonderfully. That is by far the best work I have ever done. And you get it back. Turns out the opinion of the professor wasn't quite feeling the same thing that you were. That A paper, that that paper that you turned in that you thought you had killed it, comes back covered in red ink. It turns out that you don't even really matter whenever it comes to the rubric. It doesn't matter what Paul thinks here regarding this. He's submitted himself to the rubric. I I might find solace in, in knowing that I've done well, but I might not have met the standard that is set. As it turns out, the teacher is the one who holds all the power in grading. Church, what then is our rubric? It's laid out to us in verse two. Be found faithful. That's the rubric, that's the standard that has been set as stewards of the mysteries of God. This is something that that so far seems possibly very legalistic to you, of we've been given a task and we've been given a set standard. Let me just be, be honest with you, that's my tendency is to go towards legalism. It's something that I have to continually be in prayer against and focus upon the grace of the gospel. We do have a set standard though. However, we frequently miss the rubric. We frequently miss the standard of being found faithful. Does that therefore mean that I get an F from God? If so, that is terrifying. I once heard an analogy from one of my pastor friends. He said, imagine that we are all lined up on the edge of a riverbank. Our mission and our goal is to jump across the river. And so we all stand here. We're all lined up on this, this riverbank. And some of you might just go from two feet and try to jump as far as you can. Others might take a running start and jump. And possibly there's even with us an Olympian, an Olympic long jumper who's with us. And, and we watch him and we see him and he sprints as hard as he can. And he puts his toes right on the edge of that riverbank and he propels himself as far across as he can. However, we all end up in the river. That's a lot of what's happening here. We're all ending up in the river. It is not ourselves which can progress us across the river. It's in fact, we need to stand upon the shoulders of Christ to walk us across the river. We fail in our rubric. 
Praise God, we have Christ. We have his grace. We have his mercy. He carries us to the other side. Be found faithful in stewarding this. Also realize there are times when you, being a steward of the mysteries of God, might not be understood. You, you might not have those around you looking at you and understanding what it is that you're doing as a steward. Justin pre- preached two weeks ago on our vision as a church. Uh, we looked at the text of Matthew chapter 28 of the Great Commission. We desire as a church to be a gospel transformation church where the gospel transforms lives. This occurs through discipleship. And the model that we proposed was a one up, one down, many around model. One up, one down, and many around. And when you step into this this one up, one down, many around, there will be people that don't understand why. Why are you doing this? You'll most likely have to give something up. If you're truly going to do one up, one down, and many around, you're going to have to give something up. It might be they have to wake up earlier on a Saturday morning. Those Saturday morning 5 a.m. meetings, yay. We're all really excited to say, hey, I'd love to to meet with you. And the only time they have available is Saturday at 5 a.m. What are you going to have to give up for that? It, It might be that they can only meet at 10 p.m. It's the late nights. Maybe you're an early morning riser and that eight o'clock on the clock starts coming and you're thinking, okay, it's time to start winding down for bed. And the only time that this person has available is 10 p.m. Well, that's that's not gonna work because that then cuts into my time. Sacrifices will most likely need to be made. And when you sacrifice, it can be confusing to people. By saying yes to one thing, by saying yes to a one-up, one-down, many-around discipleship strategy, you're saying no to a lot of other things. It's worth it. Even when those around you don't understand why you're doing this and why you're choosing to make those sacrifices. And even times when you yourself aren't sure why you're making the sacrifice, it is worth it. Paul continues and he uses this theme of being a steward. Think through that analogy of stewardship with me. Who is it that has the right to determine whether a steward is doing a good job and being found faithful? It isn't the steward himself or even any other steward that is around him. It's only the king. It's only the one who has given over his property, given over his authority to the steward, who has the right to determine whether a steward is being found faithful or not. Our rubric is set. We don't have the right to change it, to adjust it. Being found faithful is our standard. We oftentimes don't hit our standard, though. And when presented with the standard, we often have two responses. The first response is one of humility. I understand that I won't meet the standard. The other is to change the standard so I can hit it, so I can achieve it. This is what the Corinthian church has done. Look with me at verse number six. Paul here says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Paul chooses to use this analogy of being a steward for their benefit. There's a danger that we all can face, and it's to, to become prideful and puffed up. 
We've used the analogy of school. Let's go back there one more time. When someone asks you the question of, have you started on the project? And your response is, yeah, I actually finished it two days ago. How much pride do you carry within that? I know it feels good. It feels good to know that I've beat you. I've completed it before you. I am confident in my work, and you haven't even begun. Once again, though, our comparison has shifted. We're looking to the rubric of being our own project at that time, or even the lack of another. The rubric might be completely different, though, than what I have even set. Don't be puffed up. The Corinthian church had a problem of division here because of their pride. They were tying themselves to Paul, to Apollos, to to Peter, instead of to Christ. And by doing this, they were elevating one above the other. This wasn't the the intention of Paul, of Apollos, or Peter. Their goal was to point people to Christ. This occurs today all the time. We aren't simply looking at a problem of the past. If you would allow me here, I'm going to take a little tangent Churches, individual churches, have become isolated entities. As we here are Stone Oak Bible Church, there are, at this exact moment, many brothers and many sisters throughout our city meeting in churches that are gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, faithful churches. Paul says something here in verse 6 that should be our testing ground for churches. He says, not to go beyond what is written. If you want to know whether a church is a place that you should attend or not, look at how do they handle the word of God. There are many factors which go into a decision of what is my church home going to be. The number one on that list should be faithfully stewarding the word of God. Everything else can be placed way below that in a number two position. One of the reasons that we choose at times to put people up here in the pulpit, if you will, from myself to this year, we'll get to see our other elders in this position of proclaiming the word of God. We do it so that this book, the word of God, is the authority of Stone Oak Bible Church. Our authority and our tendency can be to rest in an individual. I'm grateful Justin is gone. Because whenever he steps out, the authority of Stone Oak Bible Church still remains. The authority of this position of proclaiming the gospel is found in the gospel, and it's not found in who is proclaiming it. One of the desires of the elders of our church here is to link arms with fellow brothers and with fellow sisters in the faith for furthering of the gospel. Our desire, and hopefully your desire, is to see the city of San Antonio radically changed because of the gospel. We, as an individual church, as an individual entity, cannot accomplish that alone. There are other great churches in this city, and we, as the elders, are beginning to explore what other churches are out there, how can we partner with these churches, and how can we pray with these churches. We actually just did this last Tuesday. Uh, So our elders, we we meet together twice a month. We meet once for business, if you will, and we meet once for prayer. Last Tuesday was our monthly prayer meeting. Uh, We invited a pastor to come join us. His name is Russell Howelton, and he's from a church called Skybridge Church. 
We have a, a picture of Russell uh, right there. Uh, Russell was previously uh, meeting around the Stone Oak area, and beginning in June, they're transitioning into a building over off of 35 and Walsham area. Uh, if you know where Rack Space is, it's right around that area. Uh, Russell is a pastor that we met with on Tuesday to hear about his church, um, to hear about his congregation, to pray for him, to have him pray for us. Um, it's a church that is very different than ours in many different ways, location and demographics of ethnicity. However, this church is a church that is founded upon the gospel, is proclaiming the gospel faithfully in an area of the city that we do not currently reach. This is our heart and our desire as a church to partner with like-minded individuals. Right now, Russell is probably 15 minutes into an hour and a half of sermon. Um, I would like to stop and pause and pray for Russell and for Skybridge Church. So if you would join me, just bow your heads. Father, right now as Russell is uh, probably preaching, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use him to proclaim the gospel in a mighty way. Father, I pray for the people of Skybridge Church. Lord, as they are setting out on a brand new endeavor to reach a new community. Father, I pray that you would give them vitality. Father, that they would be a people that are encouraged with the task ahead of them. Lord, I pray that as he begins this transition with his church of moving to this new area and reaching a new people, Father, that you would give him wisdom, Father. Lord, I pray for, for Skybridge Church as needs become apparent, Father. I pray that they would be able to reach out to brother and sister churches throughout our city. And we'd be able to come alongside what they're doing, Father, for the sake of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for another individual who you have placed in front of us that is proclaiming the gospel faithfully. Lord, I pray that we would continually be reminded that the kingdom work is greater than what we see here on Sunday mornings, Father, that you are doing a work throughout the city, Father. I pray that you would show us how we can partner with others in our city and in our area, Father, so that we can see the gospel go forth in a mighty way. Father, we thank you for sending Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Paul continues on here in, in verse 7, and he uses a set of rhetorical questions. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's continuing here his discussion on pride. And he sees something here. He asks a question. Who sees anything different in you? If I can simply rephrase that question, what makes you different than anybody else? If there are differences amongst you, if you are different than somebody else, it's because the way that God has created you and the way that God has blessed you. It's, it's, it proves his next question here. What do you have that you didn't receive? Everything that you have has been given to you. What have you earned? What do you have to show for your work that you weren't given? You've received these things, so quit taking the credit and acting like it depends upon you. Remember, we're discussing being servants of Christ and stewards here of the mysteries of God. As a steward, there really isn't anything that's yours. Everything that you could claim as your own as a steward is only there because the master has chosen to give it to you. He has blessed you with it to manage. That should eliminate any pride that we see. There isn't anything that they have done or anything that they could do 
which would cause them to swell with pride. Yet, we see here within the Corinthian church the exact opposite. They have been puffed up and they are swollen with pride. Our next section here is, is a fun section. And I believe, beginning in verse 8, it's full of sarcasm. Paul seems to me to be a very witty guy. And he seems to hear use sarcasm to grab their attention. Read verse 8 with me. He says, Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And what that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Paul's a witty and a sarcastic guy apparently here. Did you hear the sarcasm just rich within there? Paul's pointing to the church and everything that they have become outside of the gospel here. There's no longer a need. They're full. They're rich. They are kings. We're unsure if they're literally kings or figuratively kings, but ultimately it doesn't matter because what he's saying is that this is not a positive thing. I hope to be a church that is continually reliant upon God. Paul begins here with verse 9 to show the contrast here. He takes it a step further, the contrast between the apostles and the church here at Corinth. He begins with a visual of a parade. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He starts with this parade idea. Here in San Antonio, it's perfect timing as we discuss parades. Fiesta has just kicked off. Uh, two years ago, I had no idea what Fiesta was. I knew that I had a day off of, of teaching because of Fiesta, and that's about as far as it went. Turns out, Fiesta is a huge deal here, here in the city of San Antonio. If you are new to San Antonio, be prepared. Everybody is on, like, Fiesta mind. Um, Fiesta, though, is full of parades, which to me is odd. If I've ever been a part of a celebration, typically there's one parade, which is like everybody is doing everything for this parade. Fiesta is like a party of parades. Um, two of my favorite are the Battle of Flowers. That's an incredible parade to watch, but my favorite by far is the Flambeau Parade. Uh, to watch the Flambeau Parade is, is unlike anything you can ever see as far as parades go. This, however, is not an invitation you would be excited for. If you get a ticket to Fiesta, well done, you are excited for that. You get to observe parades. If you get a ticket here to join with Paul and to be the last person on this parade route, it's not a good thing. This parade here is marching towards death. The individuals at the end of this parade would be the ones who have the worst death coming for them. Theater was a large part of the Corinthian church. It was their form of entertainment, was you would go to the theater. The last act of the theater would be marched in at the very end. The last act would be an act of death. What would happen is you'd either have two individuals who would fight each other to the death, or you'd have one individual who would fight a beast of some sort, a lion or a bear, until one of them has died. You don't want to be marched out in this way. You're simply a spectacle. Nobody needs to know who you are. Nobody needs to figure out your name, your, your history. No one's going to shake your hand because everybody knows where you're heading. There's no use getting to know you because in a couple short minutes, you will no longer be here. 
The apostles here are called fools, but the Corinthians are seen as wise. The apostles are weak, but the Corinthians, they're strong. The apostles are held in disrepute, but the Corinthians, they're honored. There's something different here. One is looked at as positive and the other as negative. First, it's helpful to understand the perspective that we're looking at this from. It's coming from the perspective of the world and not the perspective of God. The world is seeing the apostles as foolish and weak. They aren't understanding of the apostles. If the world were to describe the Corinthian church, though, they'd say the opposite. They were honored. They were wise. They were strong. The church, the Corinthian church, makes sense to the outside world. Look back with me a couple of chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The word of the cross is folly. Paul here mentions a couple chapters back that this should seem as folly to the outside world. Yet, we see something very different. If the gospel here is not foolish, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, to those who are perishing, then something's gone wrong here. If the gospel isn't foolish, then they're either believing in the gospel or they're not proclaiming the gospel. We just finished up an initiative here at the church called Who Is Your One? Uh, what we did with this is we challenged each other to identify an individual and simply to proclaim the gospel to that individual sometime during the season of Lent. When the gospel is presented, one of two things occur. There's either acceptance or there's rejection. If there's acceptance, and this either means one of two things, it's either a transformed life or you presented an easy or substandard or a false gospel. The Corinthian church has presented a gospel, apparently, that's palatable, to an unbelieving world. When Justin preached on the first verse of this a few weeks ago, he mentioned that the job of a steward isn't to change the message. The message has been given, and we then, as stewards, don't have the right or the authority to change the message. The Corinthian church has been a poor steward of the gospel message in order to be accepted here. Often, the number one fear that you hear people discussing when it comes to evangelism is a fear of rejection. That's oftentimes the number one fear is a fear of being rejected for presenting my faith. I don't find it simply convenient that this chapter begins with a statement regarding judgment. Who are you working for? Who are, what are you working towards? Are we simply stewards trying to impress other stewards? Something that most pastors struggle with is, is written within this text. What is success? How can it be defined? As individuals, we love to have measurable attributes that determine success. When trying to determine the health of a church, we oftentimes go to one particular thing, and that's the number of people that show up on a Sunday morning, the number of individuals who fill seats. If you were to gather with any group of pastors this past week, one of the predominant questions that you hear asked is, how many did you have for Easter? It's one of the hot questions that, that all the pastors want to know. Why? Because we've adjusted our rubric. Where were you and how much did you increase by? Oh, we were here and we grew this much. Or 
we were here and we actually lost people on Easter. It's the hot question amongst pastors. I actually met with some pastors this past week, and one of them says this. He said, I planted this church, speaking about his Easter service, I planted this church eight years ago and preached to 30 people on Easter. To many of us, we cringe at that thought of, oh goodness, they only had 30 people. He's been doing this for eight years, and he has 30 people on Easter Sunday. What have you been doing, Pastor? Like, how are you running so many people away? That's, that's impressive what you're doing. Let me know so I can do the exact opposite, apparently, of what you are doing. However, he came to realize health is not defined in the amount of people within his seats. What is health? Look back. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, four verse 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Health is simply being a faithful steward of the mysteries of God. That's it. It begins and it ends there. If God causes growth, then praise be to God. Paul ends this section here with a pretty big downer. It isn't really what we want to hear, but it's in our Bible, so I think we should probably look at it. Verses 11 through 13. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Yikes. These aren't really the best things to, to throw into your gospel presentation of, hey, I need you to accept Christ so that all of these things can come true for you as well. If you accept Christ, here's some things that you might expect. However, let's look at the example that we have in Christ. If we're trying to model our lives after Christ, then we can expect these types of things to occur. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was given the, the most gruesome torture device, and he carried it to the top of a hill. He carried his own instrument of death to the top of that hill and then willingly climbed upon it. He was reviled. He was persecuted. He was slandered. He was treated as garbage and the refuse of all things. The translators here choose to use a more subtle word in choosing refuse. I won't say what they could have used, but yes, they could have used that. This was who Christ was. He was fully God, yet emptied himself and climbed upon the tree in my stead. I should expect the same thing. Praise be to God for the blessings that I have received thus far, which have protected me from going through the same thing that we read here, and the same thing that has occurred to Christ. I'd love to read to you from Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is an 18th century hymn writer. I love hymns. I love to read hymns. And he's also a theologian. Uh, one of his songs that he wrote, one of the hymns that he wrote, was simply called, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Just listen to the words of the song. He says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. 
Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Isaac Watts does a tremendous job of framing the death of Christ for our behalf. Paul here sure does know how to make some people feel good. And he tells the Corinthian church why he has just done this to them. Look with me one more verse at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. This is why Paul has done this. He isn't trying to make people feel guilty or feel bad for following a false gospel. He's doing it here for their own good. Often we don't like to hear the tough news. Our affections should be changed, however, when we are presented with the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Have your affections changed? What's the most important thing within your life? Who are you stewarding for? We've just been given the ability to be a bystander of Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. The direct audience of this letter is the Corinthian church. However, we need to ask the question of what does that mean for you and for me? There are five things that I think we should see from this text. I've proposed them as simply questions because it can help us to remember them. The first, who is our authority? Paul's very clear who holds the power. It isn't you, it isn't me, it isn't Paul or anyone else that's currently upon this earth. As stewards, our responsibility is simply to the master. A steward does not judge a fellow steward. It's the master who holds the authority. Remember for who we are stewarding. We steward a message that was given to us by God. It is an act and a work of God. We simply get the joy of stewarding and serving. The next question, what should we expect What should we expect as a servant of Christ and as a steward of the mysteries of God? To get an idea of what we can expect as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, first, begin with Christ. We've already covered what has happened to him. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was killed. Look next at the disciples. We'll look at 11 of them. We remove Judas here. We have historical accounts of how the 11 disciples died. What happened to them? Begin first with Peter. Peter is the most well-known as far as the 11 disciples. What happened to him? Peter, history tells us, is that he was placed upside down and died upon a cross. He said he was placed upside down because he was unworthy to die in a manner that Christ died. Next, go to Andrew. Andrew here was tied to a cross. Why was he tied to a cross? Well, they did it so that his death would be slower. James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded. Philip, crucified. Bartholomew, depending on which historical account you're going to take, was either crucified or he was skinned alive. 
Thomas was speared. Matthew, stabbed in the back. James, son of Alphaeus, was stoned, but that didn't quite kill him. So they then grabbed a club and hit him in the head. Thaddeus, or Jude, was crucified. Simon, crucified. John, we often think of John and think, wow, you got out of it pretty easy. You simply got exiled to the island of Patmos. However, before John goes to exile on the island of Patmos, they do something to him. John was placed into a vat of boiling oil. That did not kill him, so they said, okay, well, I guess we'll just send him away. John, we often think of, oh, as the disciple who died from old age. Yeah, that's true. However, to get to that old age, he was first boiled in oil and then sent to live alone on the island of Patmos. What then should we expect? Nothing less than the same treatment that these men have received. Praise be to God that we have not experienced it yet. We live in a country which has been so far rather positive towards Christianity. At any moment, though, things should, could possibly change. We should be praising God for pouring out his blessings and mercy upon us so far. That's what we can expect. What then? When is our mission complete? Read verse 5. Our mission is not complete until Christ returns. We are to continually steward the mysteries of the gospel. Do not stop proclaiming the gospel to first yourself. Paul Tripp says, No one is more influential in your life than you are because... No one talks to you more than you do. Do not stop proclaiming the gospel to others as well. This is how we steward the mysteries of God. So where should we begin? What is our first step? I would say our first step begins simply with prayer. Stewarding the gospel is not an easy task. Begin with the realization that this is not going to be an easy work. Rely upon the Holy Spirit and not your own works or your own might. I'd also suggest, suggest that you gather with a group of believers. Find your one up. Find your one down. Find your many around. The big question, why? Why does this matter? To enter time this morning, I'd like to quote from a guy named Jim Elliott. If you're unfamiliar with Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott was a missionary uh, to Ecuador, to an unreached people group there. Um, if you are unfamiliar with him, there's a movie simply called End of the Spear. I would highly suggest you, you grab a copy of it and you watch it. Uh, Mr. Elliot goes to this Ecuadorian people um, in a remote village that he has hired a uh, pilot to fly him there. What ends up happening is the people that he has been trying to proclaim the gospel to end up killing him. They take his life. It's a tragic story at first, but then you come to see that although he died and although his mission was to proclaim the gospel uh, and looking at it from a human perspective, he failed because he was unable to, the gospel still went forth in that area. It was later found in his journal, this quote. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'll read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful.
Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, it is our desire to be found faithful. Lord, I thank you for grace. I thank you, Father, for mercy. Lord, as we oftentimes are found unfaithful within our own sin, Father, of being stewards, Lord, I thank you for the cross. I thank you, Lord, that Christ on my behalf placed himself upon the tree in my stead. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we are even given this task and this ability to be servants of Christ and stewards, Father, of the mysteries of God. Lord, I pray that every individual within here feels the weight of being a servant and of a steward, Lord. Father, I pray that we understand that when we fail, that the judge ultimately is you, Father. You look upon us and you see your son. Father, but it is our desire to be found faithful within our own actions. Father, I pray for myself that I would be a tremendous steward of what you have granted me. Father, I thank you that we get the opportunity to even steward the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be a church which is continually founded upon the gospel, continually proclaims the word of God, that we would continually look more and more like your son. Father, we thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that he has placed himself in our, upon the tree in our stead, Lord, that because of him, Father, we are granted as faithful. It's in Christ's name that we pray this morning, Lord. Amen.